Pfizer tracked the adverse events during the 12 weeks of the vaccine rollout, 270 pregnant women reported a vaccine injury. But somehow, Pfizer followed only 32 of the 270 women. And of those 32, 28 of their babies died. So that is a completely shocking 87.5% fetal death rate for women who got the vaccine. Ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, Robin Openshaw here. Welcome to the Vibe Show. Today, I'm going to go through with you things that I think are the highlights or probably more likely the lowlights of the collaborative effort of Steve Bannon of The War Room and Naomi Wolf of Daily Clout. So basically, a well-known political conservative and a well-known political liberal who came together and Naomi Wolf organized uh, with some help from another woman, especially 3,500 volunteers to go through the documents released by Pfizer. They only released the documents um, under court order. They wanted to wait 55 years to release those documents. I believe it started at 75 years. They wanted to wait till everybody involved was dead and it would be a non-issue and there'd be no one to be held accountable. But a court has been ordering them to release 55,000 pages a month. They did for a while. Now they're in default on the data release. And so uh, what we've got here is a 420-page book that I'm just going to share some of the things that I think are most important because I don't think most people are going to buy the 420-page book, let alone read it. I've read a lot of it. Um, But there's a lot of data involved. And so I'm just going to give you what I think is super important for people to know. And you can go from there. I'm also going to put in the show notes a 27-minute Senate testimony in the state of Pennsylvania that Dr. Peter McCullough did very recently. And he did the whole 27 minutes without notes. Um, I'm not on camera right now because I'm not as good as him and I am going to be looking at notes. But he went through a whole lot of things, including the fact that the federal government has been telling us that 92% of Americans got one or more vaccines. And McCullough says, I haven't been able to find it, but he says that a Harvard and Northwestern study with a huge sample size shows that it's only 75% of Americans who got one or more vaccine. So if the FDA and the CDC really wanted to know how it's going for vaccinated people versus unvaccinated people, they literally have a control group of 25% of us who got zero vaccines. But let's start with the summary and it was this was led by Pierre Corey. You probably are aware of him, a medical doctor. He's in Wisconsin. Um, and a couple other volunteers who worked with him. And they went through the top 16 major concerns for the FDA's Pfizer documents that have been being released, 55,000 pages a month. Um, the FDA has said, because they've been sued multiple times to get, get multiple times to get these documents, the FDA has said that. They don't know how many pages there are, but then there's a secret document that's been uncovered that they know that there are 1.2 million pages. So I have a feeling that a lot of the smoking guns to come out of the Pfizer clinical trial data 
have yet to be released. And so this is going to really be troubling. This is going to be hard to listen to because it's truly awful. But I'm going to go through Dr. Corey's first report that is in this 420 pages. And he goes through 16 different major concerns from the documents release that started being released in late August of 2022. So let's start with number one, Pfizer's claim of 95% efficacy. Do you remember that? That they said that the vaccines were 95% effective. Well, that was based on 170 cases in over 40,000 trial participants. So that sample size is way too small to generalize it to the general public. And so then they took it out to hundreds of millions of people, actually about something like half of the entire world got vaccinated. And when you actually compare the number of participants who showed antibody evidence of having contracted COVID-19 during the trial, it's actually more like a 54% efficacy in protection that is found. Well, when they went out there in the media, every media outlet was saying saying it's 95% effective. Fauci said that probably hundreds of times in media appearances, but then the headlines went to 85%, and then they went to 75%, and then they went to 65%, and then they went to 55%, and then they just weren't talking about it anymore. But anyway, additionally, with this first concern, since vaccine recipients often don't even make viral antibodies, even when they get COVID, um, an even greater number of vaccine recipients who became infected during the 12-week trial um, were not counted. And so the actual efficacy was actually far less than that, 50% or 54%. And yet the FDA still went on to issue the emergency use authorization. So number two, there were in that uh, 12-week post-marketing trial uh, when Pfizer was tracking and reporting to the FDA, there were 32,760 vaccine-injured recipients. So all of that, 32,760 injured during the first 12 weeks alone, um, within within the first two weeks, there were, I believe Dr. McCullough said, 182 deaths. And FDA went and pushed the vaccine out there anyway, despite all of this. So of these 32,760 people who were injured, approximately 20% of these injuries included COVID-19 illness. In fact, getting COVID-19 was the third most frequently reported adverse events. And over 15% of the COVID-19 cases were graded as severe. So people getting very sick. And over 200 people in this post-marketing study for 12 weeks died from COVID-19. So number three, and this is under category of safety of the vaccines, Contrary to the public statements by Pfizer and the FDA, both of these entities were very aware of data showing that the vaccine ingredients travel from the injection site through the bloodstream and that they cross really important blood organ barriers, including the brain and the testes and the ovaries. And, you know, we were told repeatedly in the media and by the FDA that the shot stayed in the injection site of your arm 
And that was not true and they knew it. Um, And so this mRNA or whatever vaccine ingredients continued to produce harmful spike proteins for an undetermined amount of time. We still don't know. There's evidence that a year later that some of these people were still experiencing the production of spike protein. So number four, Pfizer wasn't expecting 158,000 separate adverse events to be reported during this 12-week rollout. And they hired, they temporarily hired 2,400 additional full-time staff to manage the caseload. And even though they just hired 2,400 extra people, they still couldn't determine the outcome in over 20,000 people who were re- who were reporting vaccine injuries. Number five, as Pfizer tracked the adverse events during the 12 weeks of the vaccine rollout, 270 pregnant women reported a vaccine injury. But somehow Pfizer followed only 32 of the 270 women. And of those 32, 28 of their babies died. So that is a completely shocking 87.5% fetal death rate for women who got the vaccine. Now, you weren't even supposed to participate in the trial if you were pregnant. So I don't know that anyone knows why they were even participating in the trial, um, but we'll get into that a little bit more later. So number six, still under safety, um, the Pfizer real-world data demonstrated a range of adverse side effects for breastfeeding mothers um, who got the shots and for their nursing babies. And the adverse events reported including infantile vomiting, fever, rash, agitation in the baby, allergy to the vaccine, and breastfeeding mothers experienced partial paralysis in part of their body, suppressed lactation, breast pain, migraines, and some of them reported that their breast milk became a blue-green color. Number seven, Pfizer's clinical trial documents suggest that it's mRNA vaccine ingredient that instructs for spike protein can be transferred from one person to another by skin-to-skin contact, inhalation, and by sexual intercourse through bodily fluids. So they admit in their documents that they knew that this can cause an unvaccinated person to have an environmental exposure to the vaccine. So in other words, shedding is a real concern. It's expressed in Pfizer's own documents. And yet as late as July of 2022, last year, the CDC was telling Americans that the idea of vaccines shedding was a myth And it was misinformation. Um, And then just additionally, this isn't in the report by Daily Clout and War Room, but there was a government study in 2016 that explored the issue of shedding. And the U.S. government paid for it. And they absolutely know that vaccines shed and affect people who didn't get the vaccine. So number eight, the Pfizer study inclusion criteria for men required them to either totally abstain from sex with women of childbearing age or use both condoms and other highly effective contraception. They told these men to double up and to refrain from donating sperm. So this totally suggests that Pfizer knew that vaccinated men's ejaculate could affect both women and unborn children conceived during the trial and afterward. 
Number nine, Pfizer didn't evaluate vaccine adverse events on male fertility during the clinical trials because the company said that it was in such a rush that the absence of reproductive toxicity data was necessary to speed up vaccine development and meet the allegedly urgent health need to bring the vaccine to market. Even so, number 10, during Pfizer's study of vaccine adverse events during the rollout in very early 2021, Pfizer included anti-sperm antibody positive adverse events in the 1,290 different types of adverse events of special interest that were reported. So they absolutely knew and they knew early in early 2021. Number 11, mRNA actually occurs naturally in the body and it degrades quickly, but Pfizer modified the vaccine's RNA. We could call it modified RNA so that several things happen. First of all, it continues making spike proteins for an an untested duration. We don't know how long. Two, it produces more numerous spike proteins in amounts that they haven't tested. Three, it disables the body's normal immune reactions, which may help you with immunity to other diseases like other viruses and cancer. And so even though there was significant modifications to the vaccine's mRNA, Pfizer did not perform the normal studies measuring the duration of the mRNA or the spike proteins in the body. And so they just didn't do that research. Number 12, um, one month before the emergency use authorization for teens was granted, which was in May of 2021, a peer-reviewed study showed that 35 teenagers had been diagnosed with myocarditis after their Pfizer vaccine. And so even though we know that Pfizer and the FDA knew in May of 2021 of myocarditis in 35 teens, It was three full months later when they put any statement out about a warning for teenagers about myocarditis. 13, Pfizer did not disclose that its COVID-19 vaccine ingredients included microRNAs, which are a really important natural component of gene expression and regulation, and they are associated with a lot of different diseases as well as your own immunity. So Pfizer didn't study it. They didn't study the harmful health consequences of the microRNAs. Number 14, Pfizer's phase three trial in humans was supposed to compare the vaccine group against a control group who got a placebo. And in a blinded trial, you don't tell the recipients whether they're in the blinded study or whether they are getting the real product. And I remember when they announced that they had a control group, I was like, wow, that's actually impressive because vaccine trials haven't been using control groups for decades since the 1986 NVICA Act or National Vaccine Injury and Compensation Act of 1986 when they were allowed off the hook for any legal liability for harm from their products. But I remember... thinking, oh, they're going to have a control group. I wonder what they're going to do with the control group. Well, what happened is that four months after vaccinating some of 
the group and not vaccinating the others, they told the control group to go out and get vaccinated. So basically, they completely destroyed the control group. And we can't compare the one group to the other group ever again because they got rid of the control group four months in and you really have to wonder why. So number 15, there was a Kansas facility that was manufacturing and packaging the mRNA vaccine ingredients in 2019 and 2020. And the FDA was criticizing them for testing and finding mold and bacteria and drugs that were released with no quality inspection. And as of the latest inspection, uh, Pfizer continues to recover bacterial and mold problems from different critical zones, including that Kansas facility. And 16, Pfizer and the FDA did a big bait and switch on the American public. Do you remember when they came out in September 2021 and they said that they had finally gotten FDA approval and they licensed a version of Pfizer's vaccine called Comirnaty? Do you remember Comirnaty? Well, they claimed that Pfizer's emergency use authorization version was interchangeable or equivalent with Comirnaty. But Pfizer's own documents show that only approximately 4% of the emergency use authorization vaccine was actually interchangeable with and the same as Comirnaty. So there were nine out of 190 lots that were actually the same as Comirnaty. And Comirnaty was basically never available to the general public. It seemed to be sort of a red herring out there as part of the whole media firestorm, trying to convince people that the vaccine was safe and effective. But the Comirnaty thing was really a bait and switch. So that covers the 16 major issues that Dr. Pierre Corey and the team that he worked with came up with, with the whole amount of data that has come out from Pfizer after the court order. But one thing they mentioned is that if Pfizer had a TV commercial for its COVID vaccine that's listing the 158,893 adverse events reported in just the first 12 weeks, the announcer would be reading them for more than 80 consecutive hours. So I want to share a couple more details from a couple more of the reports. Hopefully you're not too tired of listening to data, but I'm just going to share a few tidbits. Um, One of the reports is called What Happened to Pfizer's Missing Patients? And so there appears to be in Pfizer's post-marketing document a huge number of people that they call not recovered at the time of report and also unknown case outcomes. So it's in their own post-marketing document. You can look at table one and these numbers are huge. Those two groups of um, not recovered and unknown add up to 20,761 out of 42,086 relevant cases. So it's almost half of the people with vaccine injury that we don't know what happened to them. you know, this this number absolutely dwarfs the reported deaths numbers. So finding out what happened to these people, did some of them die? Why were they why were they not followed up with? So of the 42,086 cases that Pfizer analyzed, 78% of them have known outcomes. But the outcomes of 
22% of them, almost a quarter of them are not known. So why are these case reports incomplete? I mean, they hired an extra 2,400 people to deal with the avalanche of adverse events being reported. Another really strange thing about Pfizer's missing patients is that nearly three quarters of those 42,086 patients, 71% of them are female and only 22% of them are male. And then there's another 7% where they didn't identify a sex. And so we have to ask the question, why are so few male patients included in the Pfizer report? And this is especially troublesome because CDC finally stated that it's in male adolescents and young adults that most of the cases of myocarditis and pericarditis have been reported. So in the almost half that are unknown or not recovered, how many of them actually have myocarditis and pericarditis? I mean, the the reporting and the data is just so incredibly sloppy that you have to wonder if a bunch of them are being hidden or covered up. Of the the 32,686 patients where we know the outcomes, 3.7% of them died. So that's 1,223 people um, died. And this is all within 12 weeks. So we've got 3.7% of the adverse event cases that have known outcomes. Just in that group, the Pfizer mRNA vaccine proved fatal. If we knew the number of doses that were shipped worldwide, we could figure out what the actual mortality rate is. But guess what? Pfizer redacted that information when they released the report. And the CDC is out there saying that the fatality rate is 0.003%. There's a pretty big difference between the 3.7% dead in those with adverse events who have known outcomes. There's a big difference between 3.7% and 0.003%. And it's a difference of a bunch of orders of magnitude. So there's also a very strange issue of, remember that 32,686 patients that have known outcomes, 35% of them are listed as not recovered. And so what happened to them? That's 11,361 people who got the Pfizer vaccine, but we don't know. We know that they're not recovered, but then what happened to them after that? We don't know. And out of that 32,686 patients with known outcomes, they lumped two subsets of them together. They lumped together the 60% that they call recovered and recovering. Now, does that seem the same to you, recovered and recovering? We can we can assume that the recovered cases are free from any, you know, continuing adverse events or problems with their health, but what's going on with the recovering cases? Did they ultimately get well? Uh, we don't know. And so in reality, recovered and recovering cases shouldn't be put together. They shouldn't be combined. It would be a lot more honest way to present the data if they had put together instead um, recovered, instead of recovered and recovering, they should have uh, 
combine those numbers in a different way because recovering just leaves the outcome hanging. We have no idea what they mean by recovering. How do we, how do we know what that means? Do we just know that their symptoms got a little bit better? So clearly patients who received the vaccine weren't adequately tracked, possibly because of the way the mRNA vaccine was named. Pfizer actually requested a waiver of the standard method for assigning a unique name to the vaccine. And that's really important to have a unique name for a vaccine because they can do what they call pharmacovigilance. So FDA can effectively monitor all biological products in the post-market analysis and to aid in adverse event reporting, tracking. But when Pfizer applied for a waiver, it said that the standard naming method would be burdensome and redundant. So they just didn't want to do it. So to sum up, 22% of patients having unknown outcomes, 35% not recovered at the time of the review, 12 weeks in, and 3.7% dead, Pfizer concludes that the benefits of taking their vaccine outweigh the risks. How can that possibly be true with data like that? Just in the cardiac events alone, in the group with known outcomes, there were 394 cases just under cardiac that were these diseases. You ready? Arrhythmia, myocardial infarction, acute myocardial infarction, cardiac failure, acute cardiac failure, cardiogenic shock, orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, pericarditis, and myocarditis. So are nearly 400 major adverse cardiac events enough to pause or stop the widespread use of the Pfizer vaccine? Well, obviously it wasn't. So there's another report I wanted to touch on, and it's really about ineffectiveness of the vaccine. And this report was done by an attorney who's also a registered nurse, and her name is Vicki Goldstein. And her reports in this 420-page book are some of my favorites. They're well-written. And she talks about how these documents that Pfizer was forced to release show that beginning on December 1st of 2020, so the very, very beginning when people began to be vaccinated, Pfizer knew that the vaccine was being pushed on the American people with very limited efficacy. So. In in the group, um, in Pfizer's own analysis, there were 16 serious cases of vaccine failure, and there were 1,625 serious cases of vaccine ineffectiveness reported. It's on page 14 of their own document. In that same document, COVID-19 is identified as an adverse event of special interest. And there were 3,067 cases of COVID-19 reported after receiving the vaccine. And of the 3,067, 2,585 were serious relevant events, including COVID pneumonia. And there were 136 of those people who died. So Pfizer excluded cases from analysis including 546 cases in which getting the SARS-CoV-2 infection was developed 
They left them out because they got the SARS-CoV-2 infection between one and 13 days after their first dose. So remember how they said you weren't protected by the vaccine until 14 days later? Well, because they said that, they just completely dropped the 546 people who got COVID in the first 13 days after getting their first dose and just conveniently gave us data that left all those people out. So, but still, even with dropping all those people, the data still reveals multiple serious cases, including people who died, which tells us that there's vaccine failure and vaccine ineffectiveness with Pfizer's vaccine. And worse, Pfizer, which is responsible for the post-authorization analysis, they totally admit in their documents that there are limitations in the reporting and that the magnitude of under-reporting is unknown. So after all that, they knew all of that, Pfizer stated in the confidential document later recovered that, and I'm quoting here, no new safety signals of vaccine lack of efficacy have emerged based on a review of these cases. Meanwhile, you have Dr. Fauci out there saying that, quote, if COVID-19 acts like other coronaviruses, it isn't likely going to be a long duration of immunity. And he told, Fauci told Dr. Francis Collins in 2020 that, quote, we're going to assume that there's a degree of protection, but we have to assume that it's going to be finite. It's not going to be like a measles vaccine. So there's going to be follow-up in those cases to see if we need a boost. We may need a boost to continue the protection. There was a Swedish study that followed people for nine months, starting at the end of 2020. And this Swedish study showed that there's a progressive waning of the vaccine's effectiveness. Um, This is, again, the Pfizer vaccine with no vaccine effectiveness detected from seven months onward. Whereas the same study found that unlike natural immunity, which appears robust with little waning for a year following infection, there is a gradual but relatively rapid waning in vaccine immunity against infection following following a second dose. So then remember, we moved on to what they called the Omicron variant and a Kaiser Permanente study in Southern California showed that effectiveness against both symptomatic COVID and severe disease caused by Omicron, um, the effectiveness wanes three to six months after receipt of an initial booster or the third dose. So of course, the FDA went out there and said that additional booster doses may be needed to ensure individuals remain adequately protected. But on March 15th, 2022, Pfizer submitted an application for emergency use authorization of an additional booster dose. So now we're talking about a fourth dose for older adults who had received an initial booster. So all this talk of boosters and all these different words, I just call it third dose, fourth dose. But it's just more evidence that the plan was and still is endless injections, uh, no matter how how minor the actual protection is. 
And so remember that the previous attempts to develop a coronavirus vaccine for many, many years before COVID ever came along, all of those attempts failed. They could not bring a a vaccine to market against any coronavirus. Every time they did animal trials, they would inject the ferrets or the cats or whatever. And when those animals were exposed to the wild virus later, they all had a massive cytokine storm and they all died. So none of this is particularly surprising if you know the actual history of trying to develop vaccines for coronaviruses. So I'm going to cover just a few things from another report that is much deeper in this book. And it's about why COVID-19 vaccine consent must be informed. And it's by this same attorney, uh, registered nurse, Vicki Goldstein. And she's making the point that informed consent has been the bedrock of our healthcare system for over 60 years. We all remember that after the Nuremberg trials, um, it's supposed to be global law and ethics that we don't force people into medical experiments. But in pursuit of mass vaccination, the federal government, pharmaceutical companies, and medical associations blocked truthful information regarding the vaccines from the public, and they interfered with the duty of physicians to inform their patients of the serious risks and limited benefits of the vaccine prior to consent. And these organizations of doctors include the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And it includes the American Academy of Pediatrics. So the huge number of of governing or not really regulatory agencies, but the big organizations for obstetricians and gynecologists dealing with women and the huge organization, both of them have tens of thousands of members, member doctors, both pushed the vaccine and really negated informed consent. And it's not just the Nuremberg trials. I want to just touch on a couple of court cases where judges in the courts have created what's essentially case law protecting informed consent. And there was a case in 1914 called Schlondorf versus Society of New York Hospital. So New York 1914 and Justice Benjamin Cardoso said, and this is regarding patient consent, quote, every human being of adult years and sound mind has a right to determine what shall be done with his own body. And a surgeon who performs an operation without his patient's consent commits an assault for which he is liable in damages. So another case in California, it's interesting, we're talking about a New York case and a California case. But this case was in 1972, and it really upheld informed consent. It's the case Cobbs versus Grant. And a quote from the court uh, reasoning was, quote, the patient being unlearned in medical sciences has an abject dependence upon and trust in the physician. There was a case back in 1960 that went to court where a doctor uh, let his patient believe he was getting a regular x-ray, but the doctor chose to use a new type of radiation treatment and he used a super powerful radioactive cobalt. 
And so the procedure that the patient was subjected to was compared to a 3 million volt x-ray machine. But the patient didn't know, he wasn't told of the dangers of this new experimental treatment. And he was covered with severe burns. And the outcome of this case was considered in this 1960 case, Natanson versus Klein in Kansas. It was considered malpractice and the doctor was held liable. So, all right. So I told you about the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Even with all the data out there, it provided guidance to 58,000 physician members. So there's 58,000 obstetricians and gynecologists who are part of this organization. And they essentially told these doctors that informed consent wasn't required. And I'll read you a sentence from it. This was published in December of 2020. And it's this longer quote is about, sure, have a conversation with the pregnant woman or the the woman seeking gynecology care. But at the end, it says that while a conversation with a clinician may be helpful, it should not be required prior to vaccination as this may cause unnecessary barriers to access. So the way I read that is don't really tell them because then they might not get the vaccine. So there's a whole bunch of quotes by um, someone named Dr. Lee Beers who is president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And this physician wrote Dr. Fauci and the White House urgently requesting that adolescents and younger children be enrolled in the clinical trial as soon as possible. And so even though Dr. Beers acknowledged that studies have shown that children under the age of 10 may be less likely to become infected and less likely to spread the virus to others, she reasoned that, quote, children of all ages need to be vaccinated in order for the United States to achieve herd immunity against COVID-19. So not only was herd immunity not achieved by vaccination whatsoever, but this head of the most powerful organization of pediatricians was willing to use children as the armor of the seniors, apparently, according to her quotes. So that's a lot of data. There's so much more. It's a 420-page book. I think you can get it dailyclout.io. Dr. Naomi Wolf managed this whole massive group of professionals, including PhDs, MDs, nurses, scientists, attorneys, worked on many different committees to go through the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pages of Pfizer's clinical trial data. So I hope that that was helpful for you. Um, Dr. McCullough says that a Zogby survey shows that 15% of America is still having residual health effects or still suffering with adverse events of the vaccine. 15% of America. I know that we saw disability claims go up by 30 or by 3%. That's a lot of Americans going out and filing for disability. That's what happened in 2021, which is just one more statistic to add to the mountain of evidence that I think has us all very concerned. So I hope this was useful to you. I'll give Dr. Peter McCullough's 
Senate testimony in the state of Pennsylvania in the show notes down below and uh, a link to this book, Pfizer Documents Analysis Reports. I just wanted you to have a short sort of summary of the summary because this 420-page book is kind of an analysis and summary of the hundreds of thousands of pages. But now I've just given you a little summary of the summary. So I hope it's useful to you and we'll see you all next time. 